This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's get the latest on the virus and the vaccine. It's uh, obviously a story that uh, evolves on a daily basis. We can do that today with Dr. Ken Redcross. He's a founder of Redcross Concierge. He's also board certified internal medicine physician and author. He joins us on the phone from New York. Dr. Redcross, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, I'd love to just kind of get your thoughts on how you believe the vaccination rollout would and should proceed in this country. Hey, Paul. Thank you. Happy New Year's Eve, everybody. You Look, too. So this, this, is a, this is obviously a big challenge for, for us guys. We've never obviously had to deal with the pandemic. But look, we have the vaccines. But to your point, we're having a little bit of a challenge with distribution. We're supposed to have about 20 million people um, vaccinated. It's only been about 2.6. But once again, hopefully we can kind of work these kinks out and get this vaccine out, Paul, where it's needed so we really can start to try to get back to normal life. Yeah, exactly. And I guess some of the questions or there's several questions as it relates to how this should be done most efficiently. But one of them is, should there be a federal response to what appears to be a national slash federal problem? Well, you know, that's a great question. Look, there were some some newer things that have been talked about really overnight, because I have some friends who are kind of on the ground very much so for the vaccine and the development and distribution. And one of the things we're talking about is maybe not having the government hold that second dose. So in other words, Paul, you get your first dose, we all get our first dose, but we could vaccinate many more people if we were to give that second dose that the feds were going to hold back so more of us can be immunized. I think that's an ingenious thought, but we just have to make sure that when number two comes, Paul, we need to be ready. In other words, it needs to be ready to roll and distribute if we're going to take that that kind of um, lot that we were holding back. And what, you know, the initial plan uh, that that's been articulated is obviously the the frontline workers, uh, the folks uh, in that, in the elderly, uh, the people that are really most exposed. Right. Then the question becomes for the broader population: Do we need to address, or how do we address some of those communities and populations that have been hit really hard by this pandemic, and that being uh, minority communities? How do we yeah. think about that? Well, Paul, I appreciate you bringing that up because that's incredibly important, everyone, because while you're dealing with a group of people here in the United States who are ready to get the vaccine, you're talking about another group, meaning the minority population, which is a little skeptical and and has really been decimated by the coronavirus. It's another reason why I always talk about not just the, the mask and the social distancing and making sure we wash our hands, but about vitamin D. Vitamin D is incredibly important for the immune system as well. So I mix the the kind of medical part of what I do, Paul. And then when we talk about the vaccination and how to distribute it in the community, it's going to take a big education effort to really get over that skepticism as well. What is kind of the the root of that skepticism, do you think, doctor, uh, in the African-American community or just the minority community in general? You know, what's interesting to a lot of you who may not know, all the way back in the 70s, there was an experiment called the Tuskegee experiment. And you're saying, well, Doc, what does that matter? That was way back in the 70s. But look, this gets passed down from generation to generation. And just in a a nutshell, everyone, African-American males were given syphilis and weren't given treatment when it became available with penicillin. 
And so that skepticism still lives today. And so that's even kind of part of my charge as well, Paul, to say, look, obviously our health matters as far as in the minority community, but this vaccine I think is going to be a good thing. But once again, we have to get over that hurdle of skepticism. And I think the messenger is really important to make sure that happens. Is the messenger the pharmaceutical company? That's, that seems a little dicey. Is it the local physician? Is it perhaps a, a pastor in a parish? I mean, I'm just not sure how we scale that messaging up. Well, I, I love that question even more, Paul, because I think it's all of the above, especially when you talk about the, the, the pastors and the, and, the, and the faith base. And once again, this is not a discussion, everyone. It doesn't matter kind of where you are on the, on the religious scale, but the point is you have to bring in something, I always say, a little more spiritual, a little something that makes people feel like you care about me, you care about them. Um, and those sort of things are incredibly important. So it will take the pharmaceuticals kind of listening to the ground of where the grassroots are saying and what they're feeling, educating on this vaccine, understanding that this vaccine is not giving you the coronavirus. Same argument that we used to have with the flu virus. And once again, this is a big educational effort. And it's important that there are several messengers all aligned together um, to make sure that we're all on the same page. Why, why, why do you think the black community was hit particularly hard uh, by this COVID-19 uh, pandemic, maybe more so than some other uh, ethnic groups? Well, if you look at the, the what's really kind of rampant in African-American and a Latino community, you have things such as diabetes, obesity, COPD or lung disease. And these are these exact disease states that the coronavirus has preyed on, which is the reason why I mentioned earlier as far as vitamin D, because you're dealing with two populations that are incredibly low in vitamin D, and vitamin D is incredibly important for our immune system. So it's almost like a double whammy going on at this point. And when you're talking about the inner city, especially where I am in New York, social distancing is a luxury. It's something that's not possible to be done. So there's a lot of different challenges in the African-American and the Latino community that need to be addressed besides, you know, just these disease states, as, as well as making sure that we all have a plan moving forward. So uh, 30 seconds before we have a break, doctor, uh, what are you doing as you talk to your patients? Well, the main thing I do is that, that education piece, because I'll tell you, everyone, I understand. Everyone's like, well, well, doc, how did this vaccine get created so fast? Was there are some corners cut? So there's usually an education piece for me to let you know, look, there's been almost 16 to 18 billion with the B dollars put in the development of this vaccine, Paul. We've never yep. done that. So that's one of the big reasons. So we usually start there. And then from there, we talk about, once again, just some alternative ways to make sure we get this vaccine and how else can we make sure that we stay healthy and whole. I'd love to get your thoughts sure, of course. on this new strain of the virus that appears to have originated in the UK, but of course now it's made it to the U.S. shores. What do we know about it? Yeah, guys. So look, so everyone, even though we're hearing about it now, when you look at a lot of the research, this has probably already been here in the United States for a bit. And don't be alarmed because you'll probably hear some more states, probably even before I get off today, because we're <laughs> learning so much so quickly. But I'll tell you, one thing we know is that it is more contagious, that it is spreading and a little more rapidly than the typical coronavirus. But the big blessing is this, everyone. There's no proof that it's any more severe or any more deadly. And what's even more of a blessing and something that we really have to be happy about, the vaccine should absolutely still work on this. It's the same technology, even though it's a different variant, the vaccine will work on this as far as where we are today. 
So that's something else that we can really, really hang our hats on and be happy about. So, uh, Doctor, as we progress through the year and we get more and more or uh, greater availability of the various vaccines, as a physician, will you have will you recommend one for versus another? It, or, does it really matter? Are they all generally the same effectiveness? That's a great question. So look, everyone. So right here in the U.S., you've all heard the names. We have the Pfizer vaccine and we also have the Moderna vaccine. We'll have another one soon, probably the AstraZeneca, which was just approved in the U.K. The ones that we have here are pretty much the same in effectiveness, around 95 percent, supposedly Moderna, maybe 94, but kind of splitting hairs. The point is that they're both are very effective at seeing the the actual uh, virus if it comes. The issue is this. We all know that the Pfizer vaccine is the one that's really difficult to store. So that's something that I wouldn't be able to carry in my you know, office, per se, because I wouldn't have a refrigerator that cold. So that's probably more of a hospital sort of vaccine, at least for now. The Moderna, you can actually store in a regular refrigerator. So that kind of helps as far as what we could do on the ground as far as the physicians. And then some of the other vaccines, the AstraZeneca, the J&J, the Johnson & Johnson one, everyone, that's going to probably also be, be a little bit easier to store as well. Um, so it'll probably be kind of regional based on those sort of things. So it, it's interesting, Dr. Red Cross, it, it seems like the mortality rates are lower on this surge than they were initially. Is that a function of maybe our healthcare system is, is learned uh, you know, a thing or two about maybe therapeutics, what works better, what doesn't? Do you need to go on a ventilator? Do you not? Yeah, you know, it's, been, it's actually both of those things because what we have, I mean, unfortunately, I, I, I have a patient I was just dealing with before I came on to, 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 you, to the show today who is dealing with this as well. And once again, we have so many therapeutics that we didn't have at our disposal back early in March. So now we're starting to see patients get better and come home. And we're only going to get smarter and smarter at this. Like I said, the news changes literally almost hourly. Um, so, yeah, this, this next phase and the other thing we're dealing with is going to be much better, but it always goes back to those three important things that we talk about, right? The social distancing and washing hands and masks. I know that's a challenge for some, but we won't go there today, Paul. We're going to do the things that we know are going to be beneficial today, and those three things are going to be incredibly important moving forward. So, doctors, you talk to your patients, you know, what kind of timetable are you giving them? Sure, they all ask you, when are we going to get back to normal? Um, yeah. How do you kind of frame your response to them? You know, it, it changed, actually. It changed over the past 48 hours. And the reason why is because I was really talking about the beginning of 2022. In other words, I was thinking that this 2021 year, we were going to try to get it together. But with this newer strategy, potentially, about maybe vaccinating more people and holding off on that second dose until later and be ready can really make a big difference. That could be a game changer. So I'm hoping by the I'll, I'll, I'll put my penny down and I'll say by the end of the year of 2020. So I'm thinking maybe the fall. The fall of uh, 2021, presumably. Yes, of yeah. this year that we're going to have by tomorrow. Exactly. I'm hoping by the fall we would have gotten a really good hold on this. We're going to have even more vaccines by that time as well, Paul. Probably, probably four, or five, probably five or six, I should say, um, options at that point also. So I think we're going to we're going to catch this thing and and be able to get back to normal living. So, Doctor, we have about 30 seconds left on that single dose strategy. Do you believe that's going to be implemented? by any countries? 
You know, I think it's going to have to be. Don't forget, guys, we're, we're very fortunate to be in the U.S., but there are some countries that don't have the ability for refrigeration and to do things of that nature. So I think the single dose is going to be the easiest, obviously. I think that's where we're kind of going towards. Uh, but it's going to take some time. And just making sure that, right. once again, we're all following those strategies that we know works and know that we get our vitamin D levels. Let's get that immune system where we know yep. it can be, not as a treatment, but as a support. Yep. Hey, doctor, thanks so much. We appreciate that. Dr. Ken Red Cross, founder of Red Cross uh, Concierge, also a board-certified internal medicine physician and author, joining us on the phone from New York. Well, the census is officially done, but maybe it's not. Let's talk to Kristen Capps, staff writer for Bloomberg City Lab based in Washington, D.C. Kristen, my understanding was even despite the pandemic and everything, the 2020 census is done and dusted. But now I read a story that uh, maybe it's not that perhaps President Trump is looking to uh, uh, meddle with some of the numbers, I guess would be the term. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the count is done. So they've done all their door knocking. They've done the official enumeration. But there's a ton of work that happens after the, the last count is filed. They have to do data processing, um, deduplication, all these efforts to reconcile the count to make sure they're accurate. That gives President Trump a very brief window to continue to pursue uh, his goal of excluding unauthorized immigrants from the official 2020 census count. All right. So what can he do and what would be the process for President Trump, perhaps uh, subtracting some uh, people from this census count? Well, the White House started in on this path a few months ago. Um, Over the summer, the White House decided that uh, the Census Bureau needed more time to finish the data processing, and the deadline for the counts was extended into April 2021. But by September, the White House had reversed course and decided that the dates are due December 31st. So in a few hours, by close of business, the Census Bureau is supposed to send the counts to the White House, both the official account and uh, an estimate of account for unauthorized immigrants. The Census Bureau has said that there's no way that they can meet this deadline. They are aiming internally for a January 9th deadline just to get the uh, data processing finished. This is a very, very abbreviated schedule. So they are rushing and they are concerned about uh, data quality. So is is there... Does Congress get involved here, or is this simply an executive branch uh, issue? Well, it depends on what happens when. Um, If President Trump, if the Census Bureau sends the data to the White House uh, before the inauguration, there is going to be some kind of subtraction. Uh, The White House will, will take the tally of counted persons required by the Constitution minus this tally of unauthorized immigrants, this this estimate, which might be very broad, and send that to the states. The the thinking is that they will give these numbers to the states, and states can choose then if they want to use the official tally or if they want to use this this subtracted version. Now, when they send that into the House for the official apportionment, apportionment, yes, there are things that um, the House can probably do to kind of check this effort. Um, but it's mostly a play against the clock if time runs out for the inauguration. The Census Bureau is just not done 
with its efforts to make this quality control consistent with past censuses, then it will fall into the Biden administration. And the Biden administration is likely to make very different decisions. So what's the historically have these undocumented uh, immigrants, uh, have they been included in the census numbers? Is this something new or have they historically been included? Well, since, uh, you know, the writing of the Constitution has essentially always been been um, the the official count of, of residents in this country. So it's, it's the count, as, as the Constitution puts it, from what many scholars say is that, that it is a count. Um, they have, of course, gone through many different interpretations of how this apportionment, how apportionment should work and when apportionment should happen. And there has been a lot of evolution in this. Um, there are different ways that the census um, and other census products count different categories of people. Um, citizens of voting age, for example, is, is a product that is used from a, from a different uh, census uh, product. So these administrative records are what the White House wants the Census Bureau to use to come up with, you know, a kind of official count of unauthorized immigrants in this country. But because it's never been done and because there isn't a question on the census, uh, on the census about this, um, despite the White House effort, there's no real way of knowing. We don't have that count. We don't know whether the administrative data can actually produce something that is very close at all to the number of people or to the number of people where they actually reside. So it's a question mark whether the White House can get what it wants, even if it gets the time before the inauguration. But um, it's certainly not something that's been done done this way uh, before. Uh, we could say that about a lot of things, um, probably. Um, Kristen, give us a sense, just a refresher again on the timing here. You know, what needs to happen when? Because, boy, January 20th is coming up quick. It's coming up fast. The Census Bureau has identified... January 9th. That's what they're saying internally is their target for um, finishing some of their data processing effort for the first tranche of data that they need to deliver. And this is for the apportionment of the house. Um, but they're also saying at the same time, they're going to release, you know, data quality metric guides because there is a lot of concern within the Census Bureau that they don't have the time they need to produce a reliable, accurate census with everything that has happened this year um you know not not just the pandemic and you know the record unemployment and you know um uh all the movement that you know that has or hasn't happened in a predictable way um you've also had just a lot of changing of the calendar uh the white house changing deadlines erratically not delivering extensions which has made it just really difficult for the census bureau to plan whether this is a five-month project or a one-month project in, in certain cases. So they're aiming for January 9th. Um, whether that means they can deliver the unauthorized count that the White House wants by then, it, it's not yet clear. And whether any of this can happen before the 20th, it's just not clear. Christian, 30 seconds left. How important is this to the president? Is he going to push hard on this? It is an open question. I mean, at, at the same, you know, at once, um, the White House has been 
defeated before. You know, when the citizenship yep. question went to the Supreme Court, it was done. But the White House continued pushing. So I say expect something unexpected. Now, that's a good strategy for the last four years. Kristen Caps. we appreciate uh, your comments, Kristen Caps, uh, Staff writer for Bloomberg City Lab, located in Washington, D.C., talking about this, uh, the issue of the census and uh, what uh, number to use. And uh, it does have ramifications, obviously, for representation uh, in the House of Representatives. So we will keep tabs on that story. And if any breaking news, Kristen Caps uh, over the next several weeks will do that. Okay, folks, I've got a stock for you. It's got a $3.6 billion market cap. And the stock is up, wait for it, 935% just this year. Is it one of those fancy biotech stocks that's going to be a cure for COVID-19? No. Is it a high-flying tech stock? No. It is a company called Celsius Holdings. It is an energy drink uh, drink company. Um, and we have the CEO with us today to talk to us about this amazing story. John Fieldley, Chief Executive Officer of Celsius Holdings, joins us on the phone from Florida. John, thanks so much for joining us here what is behind the extraordinary performance of your stock this year? Thank you, Paul. It's, uh, it's been extraordinary. It has. And what is really behind us is we are disrupting the beverage category. Uh, we've all, I, you know, over the years, you've talked about Beyond Meats, Impossible Meats, and the disruption happening in the food and beverage category. And Celsius is disrupting the energy category which is one of the fastest growing categories in food and beverage. The overall category growth in 2020 is up about 7.2%. And our growth rate is up 62%. Uh, we're gaining distribution across the country. It's just a really exciting time to be in the food and beverage space. How are you disrupting this space? Well, what's interesting, it's health and wellness trends, as we all know. Uh, as these trends get stronger, people want fun- more functional products, more better for you products. And Celsius is all about living fit. It's about living a healthy, active lifestyle. It provides that essential energy. In addition, it tastes great. We have no crash, no jitters, seven essential vitamins, no preservatives, no artificial flavors, and we're functional. We're clinically proven to burn body fat and calories and increase your metabolic rate. So it's really the only proven functional energy drink on the market today. What are the competing products? Is this the Red Bull category? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the overall category, Red Bull is dominant, Monster's dominant. They've been dominant over the last more than a decade. And what's happening now, the health and wellness trends, the sugar's out, no sugar. Everyone wants, you know, better for you ingredients. Celsius is all built with the base of it is all green tea, plus these seven essential vitamins. People want something different. And you're seeing that the protein category, if you look at the growth in the protein snack category, it continues to grow. The beverage category is no difference. And that's, what, that's what's driving. We're seeing the momentum with Celsius and so much opportunities. We're seeing retailers across the country looking to expand their sets. New consumers coming in. You talk about those Generation Zs, the millennials. They want better for you products. And that's what Celsius offers in the energy category. And then your traditional energy drink consumer is looking for alternatives. You know, they've been drinking that Red Bull, that Monster, those full sugar products. They want something different that aligns with today's lifestyle. And today's lifestyle is all about living healthy, living better, living fit. And Celsius, live fit, that's our mantra. Are you a COVID-19 stock a la Peloton? We are, uh, you know, I, that, that, that is a good question. You're seeing a lot of those uh, momentums. Peloton's a great stock. Uh, they're doing extremely well, the pandemic. 
Celsius, we were born in the gyms. We were born at Gold's Gym, uh, 24-hour fitness, vitamin shop, and GNC. We were impacted when COVID hit. We saw basically our sales, which represented in the history in the past about 20 to 30 percent of our overall revenue, really went almost to zero. But where we saw the increase, we saw the increases on online, in groceries, at Kroger, CVS, Stop and Shop. Uh, we just got listed in Speedway as well. And we're seeing continued momentum. Celsius is just not an immediate impulse purchase. It's part of the daily lifestyle, and that's what we're building on this consumer base. We continue to drive that. We are aligned with the health and wellness trends, and we're excited for the future as we enter 2021. All right. As a former investment banker, I have to ask this question. Have you sold stock with your stock up 940%? And if not, why not? We, uh, we did a round of financing back in September. Uh, we raised uh, $25 million. We brought in two strategic funds. Uh, and in order for those two strategic funds to come in, our board of directors uh, and the executives sold a small piece to allow them to have a certain size uh, in their, to make a meaningful position in their portfolio, but we have not. Um, you know, we're, uh, we, see, we see this company going long. We see tons of opportunity ahead for us, and uh, we're excited where we are and where the category is going. Cheap piece of advice. Uh, you raise capital when you can, not when you need it. Um, so I'd love to get your sense of kind of wh- where's the growth for you guys going forward? Um, what do you, what's your 2021 business plan look like in terms of uh, some maybe new, new, new products and new distribution? Yeah, no, uh, Paul, there is so much opportunity in the beverage category, especially in energy. You know, these health and wellness trends we're seeing in North America are not just in North America. These are global trends. Uh, we're actually have a, have a 10% share, approximately a 10% share in the energy category in Sweden, just expanded in Norway, as well as Finland, see other opportunities throughout Europe. We do have distribution in China, Hong Kong, and Malaysia as well. Uh, there's a long runway ahead for us on growth. We're just getting started. And as we look at North America, where we see the biggest opportunity, we're in about 75,000 locations today. And we see uh, a great momentum in the future of new distribution Really, the convenience store is really the great opportunity for us. 70% of energy drink sales come out of the convenience channel. Right, okay. Celsius, as we we sit today, we're only at roughly around a 20, 25% ACV. So we're only in about 25% of the stores. Mm. But with the trends and the health and wellness trends, we're we're seeing great resets as we head into 2021. So we expect to be a major player. That's great. Hey, John, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate hearing the Celsius story. John Fieldley, Chief Executive Officer of Celsius Holdings, joining us on the phone from Florida. Well, when you think about some of the fast-growing, exciting stories in financial services, you think Bitcoin, you think ETFs. And I was shocked to learn today when I read the Bloomberg story that there was not, there is not a Bitcoin ETF, uh, but that might be about to change. Claire Ballantyne, cross-asset reporter from Bloomberg News. Uh, she joins us on the phone. Claire, um, what's going on here? I could have sworn that there should have been, there had to have been a Bitcoin ETF given the popularity of Bitcoin, but apparently there isn't. What's going on? Right. Yeah, firms have been seeking to launch Bitcoin ETFs uh, for the past several years. Um, there's been a lot of interest in it from the issuer side, um, but regulators have a lot of concerns about it. Um, there's some worries around market volatility, um, manipulation within the Bitcoin industry, uh, scandals and things like that, and also uh, thin liquidity, which could you know move prices around in trading. So they've been denied um, 
pretty often in the past, but VanEck has filed again to try to start its Bitcoin ETF. All right, so who is is this the SEC blocking this or some other regulatory authority? Yeah, the so SEC has um, has declined to approve um, a Bitcoin ETF in, in recent years. Um, but uh, VanEck, when they filed this one, um, they could be betting that a change in the SEC leadership um, could, you know, impact things. So Jay Clayton stepping down as chairman, uh, and depending on who, you know, President-elect Biden appoints as chairman, um, it, it could make it more favorable for a Bitcoin ETF. So is that kind of the timing issue? Because it just seems odd here to do it now. Are they trying to maybe bank on what might be a more amenable administration, SEC? Yeah, that's sort of what some of the analysts that I talked to um, thought might be going on here. Um, it also comes at a time when Bitcoin is in the headlines everywhere, as we've seen. Um, such a crazy rally, and also a lot of institutional investors are getting more interested in it. And there's been, um, it's coming to the mainstream a lot more. And so, you know, maybe Van Eck and some of the ETF issuers are thinking, you know, 2021 could be the time when this finally gets a stamp of approval. All right. So when you talk to folks in the marketplace, do they think this might get approved here? They think that there's a better chance of it. So it still has a lot of um, uphill battles to go through. A lot of the concerns that have been in the past are are still there. Um, We've also had President-elect Joe Biden nominate Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary. Um, In the past, she described Bitcoin as a highly speculative asset and not a stable store of value. So that's potentially a headwind, but uh, uh, more than ever before, this has you know has more legs than it did in the past. What's I mean? What are people talking about in this in the sector? Like, what's driving this Bitcoin rally here? It's over twenty eight thousand. You know, that's up over five x since the March low. Is just what's driving this thing? Right. Yeah. Um, from the people that I talk to, a lot of them say that it has to do with. Um, more institutional interest. You've also seen some mainstay firms like PayPal Holdings um, have have sort of put their stamp of approval on it. A lot of Wall Street's most famous investors like Paul Tudor Jones, Bitcoin's caught their attention. And so it sort of created this uh, this excitement. And there's also, you know, worries about um, lots of stimulus happening right now throughout the world and how that could impact currencies. So it's all sort of led to a perfect storm for Bitcoin and this rally. Uh, lastly, Claire, what's the sense of timing here? Uh, you file for, I guess, an ETF. What's a typical time frame? Well, it depends on what ETF they file for. Um, with this one, it's pretty complicated. I mean, it, it could be years. It, it could be, you know, in 2021, sort of, um, you know, to be determined with what the SEC does. But it's definitely not going to happen, you know, tomorrow. Um, so it'll it'll be a bit of a battle for it. All right, Claire, as a fellow Duke alumnus, and there are a few of us here at Bloomberg, we are well outnumbered by the North Carolina alumni. How do you feel about our men's basketball team? Seems like it's been forever since we last seen them play. I know. it's um, it, We need more games, and um, I'm looking forward to watching them. And it's, you know, I, I think after this year and moving forward, we need all of the, uh, the positive things we can get. So I'm looking forward to watching some games when they do come back. All right, they're coming back tomorrow night, hopefully against uh, Florida State. So we'll see that. Claire Ballantyne, cross-asset reporter, Duke alumnus.
Bloomberg News. You're joining us on the phone. We appreciate that. Again, we are well outnumbered by North Carolina. North Carolina has a great journalism school, and it seems that is one of the feeder programs into Bloomberg News. Uh, absolutely surrounded, but we, we, we hold our ground. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Boy, as Charlie was just reporting, equity indices hitting all-time highs. And as Charlie, you know, phrased it, you know, back in March and April, who would have thought that? So it's been an extraordinary year uh, in so many ways. Uh, but that also includes in the financial markets. Let's get a sense of kind of maybe where we go from here. We can do that with Brad McMillan. He's the chief investment officer and managing principal at Commonwealth Financial Network. He joins us on the phone from Waltham, Mass. Uh, Brad, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love to get your – how you framed 2020 here. I know you probably have your investment letters and so on. And just how you framed 2020. 2020 was all about the pandemic, and that that may seem obvious, but let's take a step back. You know, when the pandemic hit, the the economy was actually doing well. So we didn't have an economic recession. We had a policy-driven recession. And every single time that policy knocked the economy down, policy audit also brought it back up. And I think that's where we find ourselves today, and I think it's going to happen again going into next year. All right. So we had that uh, extraordinarily uh, extraordinary sell-off in March and April as the uh, first wave hit. Uh, and then the Fed stepped in uh, with some extraordinary liquidity into the marketplace. Fiscal stimulus uh, on top of that. That's been the elixir for this market rebound across many asset classes, not just the equities. All right. It's time to look forward. This is New Year's Eve. Let's for- look forward to 2021. What's your call? I think we've got more headroom ahead. I think there's more upside risk than downside. I think we're very close to as bad as it gets. You know, I think the real medical risk going forward is we might see another couple of weeks of increasing case counts as we see the effects of holiday travel. But then we're actually already starting to see behavioral changes start to make a difference. So we'll see cases come down and the vaccine is going to hit. So we're within a couple of weeks of the beginning of the end of the pandemic. And I think that's going to drive the economy and the markets up further next year. What does the Biden administration, we have a new sheriff in town, what does the Biden administration do for your investment outlook? Not much. All they have to do is not screw things up. And what it's looking like is even if the Democrats take both of the seats in Georgia, there's still going to be an extraordinarily um, narrow window for policy. I don't think the administration is going to screw up the recovery. If anything, I think they'll help it along. And all they need to do is stay out of the way and look at watch for the imbalances that are already setting up to kick growth off to let them take effect. All right. So one of the areas as we talk about the markets and going into next year is 
really since I would say September-ish, you know, there's been this rotation trade uh, where, you know, a lot of investors have maybe taken a little money off the table on some of those tried and true big cap tech names that have really been powering the market arguably since the end of the financial crisis, you know, the Amazons of the world, the Apples, and maybe rotating them into more cyclical names, maybe some smaller cap names, names that will benefit from an improving economy in 2021. Are you, do you, is that a trade you like? That is a trade I like, and here's why. The, the growth companies, and this has really been a growth story. It's been about technology, but really it's been about growth. The growth companies have benefited disproportionately from interest rates dropping. You know, with, with future, future earnings and revenues growing much faster, they're naturally going to get a larger benefit than a value company as rates drop. So they're going to lose that headwind as the economy normalizes. doesn't mean they won't do well, but they're not going to have a tailwind pushing them forward. Okay, and then when you look at the uh, the value companies or the companies that are more oriented towards the cyclical recovery of the economy, they're much cheaper. They're in a better position to benefit. They're cheaper and they're going to have the tailwind going forward of consumer spending. What are some of those sectors you like in, in that cyclical trade? I think we're going to see financials normalize. You know, we've seen the um, mortgage business absolutely take off with housing. I think people now are going to have to buy furniture for those houses. You're going to see credit cards do well. You're going to see interest rates normalize. I like financials. I like consumer discretionary. I like some of the beaten up sectors where there's a lot of trips that weren't taken this year. They're going to be taken next year. There's a lot of meals out that weren't eaten. In other words, people want to spend money. As As the jobs market normalizes, they're going to have more money to spend, and there's a lot of savings out there. I'd bet on the consumer this year. I think that's the place to be. How about the, you know, you, you raised the interesting topic, financials. It just seems like such a tough sector to, you know, consistently make money given where the yield curve is, given where Fed Chairman Powell says he expects rates to remain lower for longer. That really doesn't bode well for that interest income line. Well, what it means is the industry is changing, okay? It's no longer – it's no longer um, – take deposits at one, lend at two, and leave by three. You know, you're <laughs> going to see banking becoming a much more um, competitive, fee-driven business. In fact, you're already seeing that. And the major companies are doing that. But that's the kind of industry evolution that's been underway for years. And one of the things that accelerated this past year is that trend. So companies, financial companies have either had to learn not to make money or to figure it out. And I would say they figured it out. And when we get rates normalizing, they're going to be able to make more. Are you, do you have any regulatory risk concerns for the financials in a uh, Democratic uh, administration? I think that goes up. But to the extent that they make it into a feed business, I actually think they're less vulnerable to some of the more showboating charges that can be made. You know, I, other think, I also think the fact that um, – the Biden administration has gone out of their way to be centrist rather than populist so far. I think that mitigates you know, a lot of the regulatory risk. So what keeps you up at night as you think about next year? Well, there's a, there's a real assumption out there that the vaccines are going to get out there and they're going to work. Now, I, I, know we have, uh, I know we have some of the normal teething troubles getting them out, but that may end up being a much longer process than people think. That will matter. I think the presumption that the vaccines work is a good one, 
but we don't know how they're going to scale to tens and hundreds of millions of doses. Again, it's going to be about the pandemic. What policy are we going to need to respond to that, and what damage is it going to do? If the virus, if the virus gets solved, we're fine. Otherwise, yep. that's what keeps me up. Yep, that makes sense, and I think you have a lot of company there, Brad. Brad McMillan, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Principal at Commonwealth Financial Network. Brad joins us on the phone from Waltham, Massachusetts. Uh, Give me his thoughts. I think he's a uh, take takeaway there. Uh, pretty optimistic for 2021, given some of the trends that we see in the marketplace in terms of interest rates and stimulus and the path of this pandemic. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.